know about the rest of you guys, but I have been thoroughly enjoying this weather. Um, I want to see a show of hands of everybody who has been enjoying the sunshine spring-like weather. All right. For the rest of you who didn't raise your hands, we still love you. <clears throat> I, um, it's St. Patrick's Day today. I don't have any green on. Um, but I do have a green bookmark in here. So Trevor and Edie said that's close enough that I'm safe today. Um, I don't know if you guys know much about St. Patrick's Day. I had never really read up on it, and so I thought this week, um, being St. Patrick's Day, I wanted to know a little more about it. So I did a little bit of Google searching, and um, although we can't believe everything that's on the internet, it, there was some really interesting stuff in there about St. Patrick's Day. Um, the, uh, I printed up this little shamrock bookmark because one of the things, one of the, the things they say is that he used the, the shamrock as a a tool, an illustration for the Holy Spirit. Um, I thought that was kind of cool, you know. So now when you see people wearing shamrocks and, and celebrating that, it's, it kind of brings some new meaning to it. Um, and it's not the four-leaf clover, for those of you who aren't good at math. The Trinity is three, so if you're wearing a four-leaf clover, it's not quite the same thing. Um, but I found some really interesting things when I was doing my reading. Hold on, I'm waking this up, because if I look down here and my notes aren't here, I might get nervous and mess something up. Um, First of all, St. Patrick's Day, from what I read, is one of the most widely recognized, celebrated holidays in the world, <clears throat> which was very interesting to me. But then I read on that, that it's also the one day of the year where they are allowed to drink freely and, and partake. And so then it started to make sense. I put the two pieces together. But the really interesting thing about St. Patrick, I think why he's celebrated is because, for those of you who don't know, he, he was British, and as a young man was captured and taken as a slave, um, into Ireland. Well, then he escaped back, right, went home, and felt the call of the Lord to go back to these people, um, people who had, who had taken him as a slave and had mistreated him, and yet he went back to them because he recognized that they needed the gospel. And recently in our, our Rooted um, book that we're going through in, our, in some of our small groups, we did this uh, a section on serving um, people outside in, in our community, and the story is um, with Jesus and the Good Samaritan, who's your neighbor? You know, and here's this Samaritan Jew. They, they hated each other, and yet Jesus paints a picture of the Samaritan as the man who recognized his neighbor as the man that, that would be most hated by him. And here's a story of Patrick. Um, you know, the men he should have hated the most, and yet the love of Jesus compelled him to go back to them and, and take the gospel and to love them. And I just found it as a very, very interesting story and a great reminder of um, what the power of God can do in our lives. <clears throat> it's always a privilege to be able to stand up here and share with you guys. Um, I don't do it much here, but I, I have in the past. As missionaries, we've traveled all over, and we shared the stories of what God was doing um, in our ministries overseas and, and in our own lives. And so we've had lots of opportunities to share about that, and it's always a privilege to be able to stand up, and especially when we're studying God's Word and, and I get to stand up here and talk to you about what God's Word says, it's, um, the Bible is one of the most important things we have in this world. Um, and so it is um, quite an honor and a privilege to be able to stand up here and talk to you guys about what God says. Um, as Kurt said last week, the, the book of Romans is one of those books that's really loaded. Um, there's a, a ton of stuff in there for us, whether we're not sure where we are in our standing with God, whether we're, we're new believers or we've been believers for decades. Um, this book can speak truth into your life if you allow it to. <clears throat> and like Kurt said last week, there's been countless lives that were transformed just through this one letter um, as people read through it, Luther and, and many others that um, 
we're really impacted by the truths that are, are here in this Bible and so are in this book. And so I challenge you guys over these next few weeks and months as we study the book of Romans to commit to being here every week. Um, it kind of builds. You're going to see this week um, the, the, the section that we're looking at today is beginning of a bigger section, um, and it's going to be building, and, and it's important to follow these, these themes and these things that are building through the book of Romans. So I, I challenge you to commit and come every week and, and just see if God doesn't somehow transform your lives um, by the, the time we finish studying this amazing book. Today we're looking at Romans 1, um, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. So you guys can go ahead and turn there. I, I didn't give them any slides. Um, I wanted to challenge you guys today that, uh, uh, like I said, the Bible is one of the most important things we have in this world today, and, and we tend to carry it with us oftentimes, but we tend to lay it down in the seat next to us and stare up at the screen, um, looking at the verses somebody else put up there for us, and it's good practice to open the, your Bible up and, and look at the pages and find the books of the Bible. There's, I, I know tons of people who um, can't find the basic books of the Bible because they've never opened it and they've never been taught. So my challenge for you is to open your Bibles, whether it's a phone or a, an actual paper Bible, and, and follow along today as we do this. Um, before we get started, um, there was a couple of things I kind of wanted to put into place, um, help us kind of stay focused on what the intent of the author was in this section of Scripture. Um, if you remember last week, Kurt introduced the book of Romans, and, and at the very end of the section that, that uh, Kurt was talking on last week, Paul began to introduce the gospel, right? I'm going to turn back and read that for you real quick. And uh, it's Romans 1, 16 and 17. And he says, For I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. The good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And I'm reading out of the New Living today, so if it doesn't quite have the same wording as yours, that, that's why. Um, but we need to realize that Paul wrote this letter to believers, right? He was writing to the church in Rome, and yet he wants to bring the gospel to them, these people who are already saved. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why would he want to bring the gospel to people who are already saved? We always recognize the gospel as that tool that we need to, to bring unbelievers to God. And I think it's in the verse... Paul says that it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Not only is it the power of God to save those who believe, it's from start to finish. From faith to faith, as some translations say. And, uh, and it's appropriated by faith. That Paul, Paul's point here is not um, that the gospel has power for the unbeliever. He says it's power from faith to faith, this, uh, the power of, of God for salvation. And so it is the power of God for us as believers. For unbelievers, it helps them to, to come to a place where they recognize their sinfulness and the righteousness of God and to become believers, right? To be justified in God's sight. But for us as unbelievers, we read it, and, and the gospel has the power to continually work to save us from the power of sin in our lives, this idea of sanctification, right? It's the process we're in from the moment you believe until the moment you die of of being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And that is the power of the gospel for us as believers. One other point I wanted to make was, if you look ahead in, in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says, um, the second half of it, he says, we have already shown that all people are under the power of sin. And at that point, obviously, he's pointing back to these previous verses, the ones we're looking at today, and then next week, the ones we'll be looking at, to say that um, we're all under the power of sin that none of us are immune. 
And so to remember in this section, he's not telling us how to be saved. That's not the point of, his, of this section of Scripture. The section of Scripture um, was meant to show us how unrighteous we are, how desperately in need of the gospel we are. And so we need to remember that as we're reading. This isn't the, the section that tells us how to be saved. It's the section that's reminding us of why the gospel is so important in our lives. It's a picture of every one of us, our hearts before God without God. It's the very humanity that we are a part of. It's a picture of every one of you and myself today um, apart from Christ. And so we need to remember that as we're reading through this today. There's some very um, tough things we're going to talk about in here, but I think, like I said, this builds. And so as you come back in the next couple weeks, you're going to see that this very dark picture um, is going to become very bright and happy and cheerful. and, And that's the whole point of this section of Scripture. So let's go ahead and jump into verse... 18, but I'm going to back up and read 17 again with it. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. It is accomplished from start to finish by faith, as the scriptures say. It is through faith that a righteous person has life. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And it's interesting that Paul starts out talking about the righteousness of God being revealed, right? Showing us. And then all of a sudden he changes the subject. Now he's talking about the wrath of God. There's this little transition, almost like a rabbit trail, right, that we see there. But um, it's not really a rabbit trail. Paul has a very um, clear reason for doing this. There's a purpose behind him making this transition, this change all of a sudden. <clears throat> it's kind of a, one of those, oh, by the way moments, right? We call that um, parenthetical sometimes in, in Scripture when... They're talking about a subject, and they break away to something that's completely different, and then come back to it. And, and Paul has a very good purpose in this, oh, by the way, moment. And it's because, I think, without bad news, is there such a thing as good news? I mean, if there was no bad news, all news would just be news, right? I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it's the idea of uh, a drowning person. We all know the story. I mean, you see somebody drowning... You, you don't jump in while they're flailing around and try to grab onto them and bring them to shore. What happens? They're going to fight for themselves, and they're going to take you both down with them, right? It's not until they, they realize their lostness, right, their inability to help themselves, and they stop trying that we can jump in and actually help them drag them to shore. Um, when we were in Papua New Guinea, um, I got very sick in the tribe. They thought I had dengue fever, which is a really rough disease. I had 10 days um, where I never got out of bed. <clears throat> and, and months later, after I supposedly recovered, I, I'm still having these all kinds of problems, all kinds of symptoms. I had continued to lose weight. I was down to 170-some pounds. Um, and so we decided I needed to get to the doctor. And we go up there, and I go through a battery of tests. I got EKGs resting, EKGs after exercising. I got poked and pricked and, and prodded and, and blood work taken, all this stuff done for weeks. And um, finally, the doctor calls us in, and... and he kind of lays out, you know, what they found. But, but what was interesting was he, he had this medication he wanted me to take. And he said, it's bad. The medication's bad. You're going to feel horrible. You're not going to be able to eat. You're, you're just, it is not a good thing. And it was. Let me tell you, I felt way worse taking medication than I felt before I took it, just suffering through the disease. But you know what? Had I not known how sick I was, had he not explained how critical it was that I took this medication, I would never have taken it. The first time I took it and it tasted that bad and made me feel that bad, I would never have continued. But I needed to recognize how bad off I was before I was willing to accept the doctor's prescription. 
And that's what Paul's doing here. He, the, those of you who have suffered with addiction, I, I believe the first step in, in the process is to recognize that you have a problem. You can't recover from something you don't recognize you have. Jesus said he came to say, seek and to save those that were lost. And, and Jesus came to the Jews, his own people, right? And what happened? They rejected him. They rejected their very own Savior. And it was because they couldn't recognize the fact that they were lost and that they needed a Savior. They were unable, but I think they were also unwilling to admit that they had a problem. So Paul here, I believe, is starting off with some, answering some why questions. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need God's righteousness? Why is it by faith? All these questions that, that may come up in, in a person's thinking when they hear this. <clears throat> and so that's, I, I believe, why Paul has stepped away from talking about the righteousness of God and now talks about the wrath of God. So let's continue reading. We're going to do uh, verses 18 through 20. And I'll go ahead and read them for you. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So the first question I'm going to ask, I have a series of questions here that hopefully are going to help open up and reveal some of what Paul's talking about here. The first question I have is, why is the wrath of God being revealed? And we just read in there that the wrath of God is being revealed <clears throat> to those who suppress the truth by their wicked, wickedness or their unrighteousness. It says that they know God because he made it obvious to them. All of creation shows that there is a God who created it. If you turn over to Psalm 19, 1 through 4, I'll flip there. You guys don't have to turn if you don't want, but you can if you want practice finding obscure sections of Scripture. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone out through the earth and their words to all the world. Scriptures are very clear that all of creation reveals that there is a God. And yet, we know that he is rejected by all. He's not rejected by some. He's not rejected by those who, who can't understand. He's rejected by all. <clears throat> And so we have to ask the question, how well did God reveal himself? If people reject him, then obviously he couldn't have revealed himself that well, right? But the words that, he, that Paul uses here are very clear. It said, they know. Not they might know, not they're guessing, not anything. No is a, is a very... Um, just drew a blank on my word. Anyway, they know. <clears throat> and why do they know? Because he made it obvious. He made it totally obvious. It also says further on that Everything about him is clearly seen, and that they are without excuse. Sorry, I just bumped my page. And it says they are without excuse. There is no excuse. He made himself clearly known. It was obvious, and everybody is without excuse. At this point in Scripture, Paul has been talking mostly about Gentiles, right? He's talking about them, they, th those who are outside of the Jewish faith, uh, outside of Judaism. 
But ultimately, as we read through this section of Scripture, and, and next week as we look at the next section of Scripture, we realize that Paul is really indicting all of mankind. Every human being on the earth is without excuse. There's no one in this world that can say there is not sufficient evidence for God. So let's continue on verses 21 through 23. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. How did they suppress the truth? It says they knew God, but, and it's the but part that we need to pay attention to, it says they refused to worship God. We were, as humans, we were created to worship. God created us that way. Our, our, we're designed to find something to worship, and guess what? If it's not God, it's going to be something else. They refused to worship him. They also refused to give thanks to him. They exchanged the glory of God for mere creatures, mere creations that God created. <clears throat> and that is what we call idolatry, right? It's anything we place, anything we put in place of God um, becomes an idol. And it's, like I said, we are created to worship. Idolatry becomes a natural part of who we are apart from Christ. <clears throat> in, uh, oh, um, refusing to acknowledge God, according to Proverbs, is the definition of a fool, right? Because without um, a source, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Without a source of objective truth, we cannot rightly um, interpret the world around us. Proverbs 9.10, I'm going to go ahead and flip over there and read it for you real quick. Proverbs 9.10 says, For the fear of the Lord is foundation of wisdom, Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. For apart from God, we cannot be wise. We are fools, right? And apart from God, we think we are wise, and yet we are utterly foolish. <clears throat> In the third chapter of Genesis, we read about Adam and Eve. And what did Adam and Eve do? They were given one rule, right? Just one rule. God said, I'm giving you everything you need. There's just one rule. You know, there's this one tree, one fruit that you can't have. And Satan tempted them. And what did Satan tempt them to do? He, they tempt, he tempted them to exchange the glory of God for a piece of fruit. Here was God providing everything they could possibly ever need, right? And they looked at this fruit, and it looked appealing. Here was a piece of fruit that they exchanged for the glory of God. We know civilizations, civilizations throughout history have created all kinds of things to worship. I mean, just, just turn to... Um, Egypt, in the, in the Bible, and you'll see all the things they worshipped. We worship animals, we worship trees, we worship planets, the wind, the sun, <clears throat> the stars. Um, we can find just about anything to worship. But you know what, ultimately, what it comes down to is we're worshipping ourselves. Man becomes his very own idol. That's how foolish we can become apart from Christ, that we worship ourselves. Again, like I said, we were created to worship. 
<clears throat> and when we reject God and, and, and who he is, it, that's how foolish we can become, that we will find rocks and stones and dirt and, and things that have no meaning to, to worship. So let me ask you a question. Who is most tempted to deny the legitimacy of a rule or a rule maker? It's not really a rhetorical question. It's the person who's breaking the rules, right? Those who break the rules are the first ones that are going to reject the rules that they're breaking or the legitimacy of the person who set those rules in place. So, of course, as people reject God, <clears throat> I mean, as people live in unrighteousness, right, as they're breaking the very rules that they know exist, they're going to reject the rule maker and the rules that he set in place. Next question. How is God's wrath revealed? I'm going to kind of jump through a couple of verses here. Um, 24 through 26 says, So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's body. We're going to jump down to 28. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to do their foolish thinking, to their foolish thinking, and let them do the things that should never be done. How is God's wrath being revealed? He abandons man. To follow his own ways. God abandons us to follow the path that we choose to take when it's not his path. <clears throat> there was a quote in, uh, from Cranfield in his commentary on Romans that I really liked. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you guys. It says, God deliberately allowed them to go their own way in order that they might learn to hate the futility of a life turned away from the truth of God. It was an act of God's judgment and mercy, the God who smites in order to heal. And throughout their time of God-forsakenness, he is still concerned with them and dealing with them. <clears throat> God's wrath is a deliberate act on his behalf to abandon man. Not abandon to the, in, in the sense of eternal judgment, but abandon them to walk their own way, to go the, the direction they choose to go. Verse 24 says that he abandoned them to do whatever their hearts desired. You ever heard that advice before? Follow your heart, do what your heart desires. The Bible is very clear that our hearts are desperately wicked. <clears throat> and when we choose to reject God, guess what? He allows us to follow our hearts, to follow that wickedness wherever it leads. But the point of him abandoning us is not that he forever wants to abandon us, but that at some point it will cause us to turn back to him. So, question, what happens when man rejects God and God abandons man? Let's continue reading. Second half of 26 says, As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex instead, indulged in sex with each other. The med, men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with the other men, and as a result of their sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. So what happens when man rejects God and God abandons them? When we are allowed to follow our hearts, as it says in verse 24. It said they did vile and degrading things with each other, that they burned with lust, that they had unnatural relationships, that they did shameful things. <clears throat> Homosexuality was not 
the root sin. Homosexuality was the result of a life that rejected God. It was the result of a life of idolatry. And even though Paul here is <clears throat> disapproving of homosexuality, the point here is not homosexuality, but the idolatry that drove them to that type of lifestyle. When you think about it, from the very beginning, God created man and woman, and somehow in that union, that uniting of a man and woman, there is a picture of our relationship with God. It's integral to God's creation that man and woman, woman follow that, um, that process that God set up for us. <clears throat> and it makes sense, if you think about it, if, if somebody is rejecting God, of course they're going to reject any institution that represents God, or especially that represents the relationship God desires to have with us. So it makes sense that forsaking that relationship that God set in place that represents our relationship with him would be one of the first things that would get um, rejected, thrown away, tossed aside. And I know that sounds really bad. <clears throat> in our society, um, especially in church culture, homosexuality is a, is a very tough subject, and it's, it's very polarizing. And it's, at times we consider it one of the worst things that could possibly happen. But you know what's funny is, Paul doesn't stop there. Paul's going to continue on telling us telling us the outcome of those people who reject God and, and walk in idolatry. So let's continue reading. We're going to start at verse 28 and finish the end of the chapter. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. said their lives became full of, not they practiced, not it was, you know, a part of who they were. They became full of these things. <clears throat> the first one he says is wickedness, not just some wickedness, but every kind of wickedness there is fills the heart of man. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, Malice, malice is like this intent to do evil, like intending to do bad things. Gossip, backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, this idea of lacking respect, especially respect for those in positions of leadership, being proud, boastful, disobeying parents. You guys have kids in the room, you can elbow them right now. <clears throat> lacking understanding, they're promise breakers, they're heartless, they're merciless, and even worse, they encourage others to do those things. I found it very interesting reading through this that murder and disobeying parents are on the same list. Very interesting, huh? Doesn't seem to make any sense, right? I mean, if I put a big greater than sign up here right in the middle and we started like laying out sins on the stage, we'd have, you know, over here the, the less than would be disobeying parents, right? And, and on that side, the greater than, we'd have murder, right? I mean, murder, of course it's the worst. <clears throat> we always want to quantify sins for some reason. 
Like somehow this, these lesser sins are more acceptable and the, you know, those greater sins we, we can't accept. And especially in the church. It's really sad to see this going on in the church. <clears throat> and yet, how does God quantify sins? He doesn't, right? He can't. They're all equally offensive. There isn't some sins that are lesser, more acceptable, and some sins that are greater and, and less acceptable. They are all sin. Not sins, but sin in there. All represent a rejection of God himself. So let me ask you a question. As I read through that list, this really ugly list of things that none of us want to admit um, have been or are a part of our lives, how many of you read those and, and, and recognize that those words describe your life? Maybe your life before Christ, right? But how many of those words would have described you today or this last week or how you responded to a situation in your life? <clears throat> Maybe it's a struggle you're having daily. Maybe it's a stronghold that's still in your life. But as you read through that list, how many of those things bring shame to, to you as you hear them? And remember, the whole point of this section of Scripture is Paul's building a case for the gospel. <clears throat> how desperately we are in need of the gospel. And as believers, if you found anything on that list that represented some part of your life recently, guess what? You need the gospel. That's Paul's point. Remember, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. For those of us who are believers, it's the power <clears throat> for sanctification, this idea of, of us being conformed more and more into the image of Christ, and it comes from the gospel. These are Paul's words, and more importantly than that, they were God's words that he gave to Paul to give to us. So, my challenge to you guys is, you guys have probably heard the story of, of the man who gets lost in the, in the uh, blizzard, right? And he's wandering, and, and he finally makes his way out, right? And he looks back across the path that, he, that he'd taken, and he realized he walked across the frozen lake, and the ice was very, very thin. And it scared him, but as he looked back, he was thankful that God rescued him through that. He had no idea he was walking on paper-thin ice. <clears throat> and that's where we're at today. As you look back over this list of horrible things, and you see that that represents the story of your life, it should draw you to fall to your knees and be thankful for all that God has forgiven us for. But I have a bigger challenge today. This is a really difficult section of Scripture, and it's a very polarizing subject, as I said. You know, this, this LGBT movement. And you know, they've added all these other letters on. That's, you know, inventing new ways to do evil and, and encouraging others to do evil things. Um, this LGBT movement seems to represent that in our society, and it is very polarizing. There are, there are entire churches that do horrible things towards our gay community, I think because they don't understand the love of Christ. And then you have other churches that have embraced it and made it a part of, of their culture because they don't understand the judgment of God, right? And so my, my challenge for you guys is this, to recognize that for the LGBT community, their greatest sin is not this lifestyle they chose. Their greatest sin is their rejection of God and their idolatry and them worshiping themselves. And to remember that their greatest need is not to change their lifestyle, not to change the way they're behaving, not to change the choices they make. What is their greatest need? It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And you know what, guys? You and I right here, we may be the only gospel they're ever going to see. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you love us, Father, that, that your gospel is power and that uh, you provide salvation and you choose to love us even when we're unlovable, Father. Help us to go out of these walls today and, and remember that the gospel is the most important message that we can take to those outside these walls. Help us to be uh, loving and accepting and uh, full of grace and mercy to those around us, Father, and, and help us to remember our own desperate need for the gospel and, and the life-changing message that's hidden in there. We just love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.